Paul McCartney isn't a genius. Paul McCartney isn't even particularly talented. But Sir Paul McCartney, one of the most famous culture-changing creatives of my time, has practice. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about your practice and get back. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Casa San Jose is a nonprofit whose mission is helping Latin American immigrants living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They provide free attorneys that go to ICE detention centers to assist people in need. They also help their people find homes, medical services, English lessons, and more. Visit their website, casasanjose.org, to see the amazing work that they are doing. I'm using my words very carefully here. Paul McCartney is not a genius. John Lennon was not a genius. But Paul McCartney plus John Lennon created genius. Because genius, like art, is the work of a human. A human who is leaning into something, doing something surprising, something more than they have to, something that might not work. And when it doesn't work, we sort of ignore it. But when it does work, we're tempted to chalk it up to talent, something people are born with, to some mysterious voice from the muse, that it's easy to believe that other people have genius, that other people have talent, but not us, not right now. And so we get stuck. So what I want to talk about is a movie that is impossible. Try to imagine this. The four most famous creators of all time in any field in one group, the Beatles, who are in the midst of a lot of internal stress and strife, at least one of them a heroin addict at the time. In that setting, the four Beatles agree to write and record a record in three weeks and then perform it live on television. Oh, and by the way, to film all of it with multiple cameras, Long before social media, they put themselves into this jam. Why did they do it? And what can we learn by looking at it? If you haven't seen the seven and a half hour movie from Peter Jackson, I recommend it, but you can get the gist of what I'm saying without seeing it. The first reel, that first hour and a half or two hours, is totally worth your time. What we see is that each of the Beatles is what they are. They act that way when the cameras are on and when they don't know the cameras are on. Ringo, Ringo shows up on time. He's never late. Ringo, Ringo is there to absorb the vicissitudes and stress that other people have. Ringo plays the drums the way he's supposed to play the drums, but he is not bringing a particularly creative practice to the work on his own. But it doesn't work if he's not there. If Ginger Baker from Cream were the drummer for the Beatles, there never would have been a Beatles because Ringo is the glue. He's a shock absorber. He can absorb what's going on. When we watch George Harrison, seeing his practice is sad indeed. It's sad because George has persuaded himself that he doesn't have what it takes, and he desperately wants John and Paul to like him, to like his work. And so he usually brings songs to the group when they're almost done. 
and before he starts playing, he announces that the song's not very good. Then, hunched over the guitar, hiding as he plays, declaring that he's no Eric Clapton, he plays the song. And the group sort of ignores him. John, John doesn't want to do his practice in front of other people. John brings in his work fully done. But really, the movie is about Paul. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Paul was the reason that they filmed it, because Paul needs certain elements to have his practice. In one of the key scenes, we watch Paul composing one of the great Beatles songs in real time. It's astonishing to watch. I'm going to play for you 60 seconds here. Lens laser again. Between 10 and 11 is the time. Thinking of getting rid of him. I'm never late. He's never late. He's a bloody pro. He's going to So here's what just went down. Lennon was late. This disappoints Paul. It disappoints him for a couple reasons. Partly because his practice, his creative practice, his skill, relies on working on a regular schedule. Showing up when you say you're going to show up and doing the work, perhaps under pressure. Why do you need to write all the songs for an album in three weeks? It's not like these guys have day jobs. Why didn't they show up with all the songs done already? Because Paul needs this system. The second thing, if you watch the video, is that you will see George making a face the whole time. He's not really bored. He's sort of afraid because he's hearing a song that's not very good and he doesn't know what to put on his face. And he's sitting there saying, this song isn't perfect. What is going on? And Ringo sits sort of passively, giving Paul the space he needs. But the coolest part and the part that we learn something from is watching Paul McCartney play a song that's not very good over and over again until it becomes a song that we will never forget. How did he do that? He did it exactly the way we can do it, the way you can do it and the way that I do it. We do it poorly and then we begin to do it well. And then John shows up and what happens there is another part of Paul's practice.
what happens there is that you see that what Paul really wants is to get under John's skin, to get John to want to play along, to get John to want to smile and jam with him, because John is the audience for these songs. If you've seen any of the concerts the Beatles did in the 60s before they stopped touring, what you'll see are an enormous number of 14-year-old girls screaming as loud as they can. It's not possible that the Beatles respected this audience. They weren't making music for this audience. And the reason that we have Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and Abbey Road is because they wanted to move beyond this audience. The audience for Paul was John, that he persisted in sitting with Ringo and George because they gave him a stepping stone to do his practice. And the entire movie is about Paul setting up all the pieces that he needs to do his practice, including some that he shouldn't be that proud of, like the fact that he never gives George a particularly large amount of attention or positive feedback that could have brought out some of George's skill. But leaving that collaboration part aside, what we see is that having your own practice, whichever it is, is essential to being a working creative. Here's another bit from the movie. And this time, George is stuck. And he comes to Paul and John and asks for help. John gives him standard Paul advice. Just say a word, whatever word pops into your head, because you'll come up with a better word. What could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. Hmm? It's preview one, I think. Something comes in your head each time. Just say whatever comes in your head each time. Attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. I've been through this one like for about six months. You haven't had 15 people joining, have you? No. I mean, just that line. I couldn't think of anything like a. I think putting the word cauliflower on the wall of your cubicle or your home office is a really good idea. Because every time you see that word cauliflower, it will remind you. Just put in a word and then you can make it better. But what happens here is George can't adopt the new practice. Because it doesn't come easily, he's fighting it. And we keep waiting for him to say the right words. Because we know the right words are going to come. We've heard the song a million times before. And the right words eventually came. But if he was a little lighter on his feet, if he wasn't looking in the moment for the kind of perfection and approval he was seeking, it would have come more easily. That's part of the practice. John's practice, addled, I think, by heroin, certainly created some of the most important music of my youth. It worked for him until it didn't. Paul's practice, 60 years, 70 years now, of showing up and playing the music, it works. It works for him, and it could probably work for you. The reason that I've pushed so many people to have a daily blog is simple. Once you decide to have a daily blog, you don't have to decide anymore. It's a daily blog. So, on Tuesday, the debate is not, do you have something good enough to blog on Wednesday? The debate is, which thing will you blog tomorrow? Because there will be a blog tomorrow. Not because it's the best one you ever wrote, but because it's tomorrow. If we look at the output of companies when they're scaling the heights, something like Microsoft in the 80s and 90s, they came out with dozens, hundreds of products, 
that just weren't very good. And sometimes those products made it to version 2.0, and they were a little better. And every once in a while, it made it to version 3.0, which tended to be a little overweight, but showed glimmers of being something great. And Apple has done the same thing. And so have so many other companies or individuals, individual creators like Miles Davis, who made more than 50 records. So did Bob Dylan. Miles, Bob, Paul, John. It's too much of a coincidence that too many musical geniuses were working in the 60s and then suddenly they all disappeared in the 90s was nothing but trite stuff. No, that's not what happened. What happened is skill. Skill can be developed. It can be developed in any field where creative skill is appropriate. And as the culture changes and the market changes, the fields change. And so there is space for somebody to show up. If Paul McCartney were born 10 or 15 years ago, I have no doubt he would not have become a musician. He would be somebody perhaps on the frontier of developing new forms of social media, or I don't know what, you can fill it in, whatever we are celebrating right now. The punchline of this rant is simple. I'm not Paul McCartney, and neither are you. Finding a John Lennon and finding a duo, a partner, an audience, that's really helpful. The fact that all four of them were from Liverpool is not an accident. It created the situation that got them to Hamburg, and Hamburg gave them the 10,000 hours that gave them even more skill. Skill to play, sure, but skill to listen, skill to leave space, and skill to become the people that they chose to become. If you're not happy with your creative output, then you are probably not happy with your practice. You don't need new genes. You don't need different parents. You need a new practice. And a practice, a creative practice, an approach to what we do when we're stuck, to the change we seek to make, to the voice we seek to have, the beauty of it is the practice is still available to each and every one of us if we care enough. To go through all the moments when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to do, when we can't imagine that we will create another thing. To forgive ourselves in those moments and then to do the work anyway to do it in front of the right audience the right way, without apology, and to do it in a way that fuels our soul and contributes to the community that we've decided to be part of. I can't wait to see what you're going to make next. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some really juicy questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, 
I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can upload an ad about a cause or hobby you care about, and you can check out the show notes. I'm recording this as we wrap up 2021, and there's some really fascinating, deep questions. I can't get to all of them, but here we go. Hey Seth, my name's Eloise. I am based in London and I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, especially your work in learning and education. And I took an online course that you did a few years ago about learning and education in which you were talking about the changes in the learning landscape and how things would be different in the future. And I also work with a lot of young people and students in my everyday work, people who are thinking about what they should do next with their careers, with the jobs of the future, all of that stuff. So my question is, as we head into 2022, what is the one piece of advice that you would give young people or the young leaders of tomorrow as they make their decision about what comes next? Thank you for this, Eloise. The first piece of advice I have is don't listen to people who have just one piece of advice. I don't mean to be facetious about that, but it's true that if you've made it to 15 or 18 or 24 years old and someone shows up with one piece of advice, it's really easy to want to add that to your notebook of pieces of advice and then sort of miss the point. But I do have one piece of advice. I just don't think it belongs in your notebook. And it's this. Think really hard about whether or not you have been indoctrinated into the old industrial model, that you are waiting for someone to pick you, to, quote, give you a job, that your career will be narrated by a resume that lists all the places where you followed instructions, and that your job is to do what you're told, because that's been coming at you for a long time. And those days are clearly fading away, that the future already is here, and the future is about figuring out what you want to do next, taking responsibility for it and not waiting for authority. That it's entirely possible that people will pay you to do work, but it's also entirely possible that you will simply do work and then get paid for it. And those are two different things. So the lens, the very glasses that we're wearing as we look out in the world, those have shifted. I remember back in business school, there were two paths when you were done. Either you went to the placement office or you didn't. And the companies that came to the placement office to interview folks got people who were looking for the direct path to being told what to do. And the alternative was to go figure out and find what to do. And if that meant getting a gig for now, please go get a gig for now. But that was 40 years ago, and the world continues 
to change. Thanks for this one. Um, my question is around the future of employment. Um, and um, I, I have a small company, a uh, branding design company here and uh, started it nine years ago. But it's getting increasingly harder uh, to keep people. Uh, I did a poll on LinkedIn the other day and I just asked my audience of, of people if they love their job, like their job or hated their job. And I was really surprised and happy to see that over 50% of the people that responded said that they loved their job. Now I know that's my audience and probably uh, there's a reason for that and all that, but I do think that, um, I do get, I do get nervous. Um, I'm constantly thinking about ways to, um, keep people engaged, incentivize them, um, make them feel like they have a future with us. I, I don't like losing people. Um, um, what do you see as the future of work and employee retention? Thanks, Adam. And this is a great segue from Eloise's question. There are several things happening all at once. One of them is that low-paying, low-respect, low-dignity industrial jobs, those got looked square into the eye by a large population of people in the last couple years, people who were confronting illness right around them, people who had enough space to think about it because they were sheltering in place, who had some financial support, who realized that being on the front lines and being abused and risking their health all at the same time for a minimum wage, that was hard to swallow. So that's one of the things that went on. And the second thing that went on, and the one you're talking about, is that people with real skills, people who are in your case, on LinkedIn, who have choices, are taking a deep breath and saying, wait a second, what's next for me? And loving what you do all day, what a privilege. I mean, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, it wasn't even discussed whether or not you loved what you did all day. You did what you did all day to feed your family, the end. And only recently did we create this sort of indoor work that looks an awful lot like playing a video game and hanging out with friends while eating donuts. And overlaid with that is the idea that you could love your work. And the job opportunity is to be able to show up for people who have this attitude, who are willing to be linchpins, who have a bunch of skills and are willing to learn new skills and create a place for them to grow because people stay where they grow. And in a small company, it's impossible for you to have no turnover if you also have growth. Because as people grow, it is possible but unlikely that your company will grow big enough to support them in where they seek to go. And so turnover isn't a bad thing. And turnover isn't necessarily a criticism of how you are leading your company that what we have is the opportunity to rethink small organizations more like studios. And so if a director or a producer or a cinematographer leaves a studio to work on a different project, well, that's what the project lifestyle is about. Tom Peters first wrote about this 30 years ago, where he talked about the fact that Hollywood's model of bringing together a bunch of people to work on a project who then disperse when the project is done was going to come to lots of places that are based on information and creativity and ideas. And he was right. This shift to the Hollywood model for projects that involve passionate, creative, dedicated people working with information, it's happened. It's happened quite slowly, so slowly that most people didn't notice. 
but it has definitely happened. And LinkedIn is part of the reason because you can assemble your team much more easily than you possibly could have 30 or 40 years ago. What does this all mean? It means, as I mentioned to Eloise, that people who work for a living need to think about gigs not as a failure or as a stopgap, or as my grandmother used to say, he's a freelancer, but in fact, the core of what we do. Show me your clips. Show me what you've accomplished. Where are you headed? Don't try to please the boss. Try to figure out what arc does your career even have. And if you are the boss, the manager, the leader, get really clear about which jobs need to be managed, and a lot of those are just going to be outsourced because it's easier and faster and cheaper, and which jobs involve leadership, having people solve interesting problems, doing work that matters for people who care. And yes, there's going to be turnover, but it's life, and life is about change. Hi, Seth. My name is Kendrick, and I'm a family doctor in Arizona, and I have been listening to you for quite a while now. And it seems to me like you don't spend a whole lot of time trying to establish the authority of what you're saying. Meaning I, I don't seem I don't seem to think that you take a lot of time citing scientific evidence and, you know, trying to uh, argue the validity of the evidence of of what you're trying to say. And as a physician, especially over the last year and a half, you know, I I think that uh, there is reason to be skeptical of of people making statements, you know, without being able to back it up with uh, a lot of scientific evidence. And yet, I haven't really found any opportunities to criticize you or or necessarily, I, I don't feel skeptical of a lot of the things you say. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's because you've chosen carefully what things to talk about and um and I also wonder if maybe it's just because I like you, and um, and so I'm I'm not going to be as skeptical when I listen to you. But either way, I'm interested to know if you have a system of some kind that you use to decide when you're going to make a statement without backing it up with authority or without calling it your opinion, because um, it seems like. You know, when I when I make a statement in social media or otherwise, you know, I I feel like I either have to say this is my opinion or say you know this is where the source came from, and uh, I just don't see you doing that as much as as you, you might. So love to hear your thoughts and thanks for all you do. Thank you for this question, Kendrick. I've been thinking about it a lot. It's got a lot of insight to it, and I want to start as I often do with Ignat Semmelweis, who figured out and proved proved beyond any shadow of the doubt that maternal deaths were being caused by doctors not washing their hands. This was in the 1800s in Austria. After he proved it in a document that you can still read to this day, I'll put it in the show notes. After he proved it, how long did it take the medical establishment to start washing their hands? 20 years. Or let's fast forward to the 1950s and 60s when researchers proved, proved beyond any doubt, that ulcers weren't caused by eating pastrami sandwiches, which my great uncle gave up even though he didn't want to because he had ulcers. No, ulcers were caused by bacteria. The question is, how long did it take for the medical establishment to embrace the idea that that was the cause of many ulcers? You got it, about 20 years. It's easy to believe, and as a trained mechanical engineer, I often believe it, that we are driven by the data, by the proof, by the references, until 
we confront one that just doesn't sit right. And then we say, well, bring us more data. If we were truly only driven by the data, then it's not clear to me that anybody would be a chiropractor because in double-blind studies, it doesn't do anything. But the thing is, we're not double-blind. And embracing the idea that you are delivering a useful placebo to people is a story. And so we've all got a range of stories. I'm not saying there isn't truth. Of course there's truth. This happened. That happened. These numbers add up to this number. History occurred in this way. I can see it on the video. However, eyewitness testimony has been shown again and again to be suspect that what some people have as their story is their story is, show me the data. And what some people have as their story is, what feels right to me. And there's a huge spectrum between the two. So that's the warm-up for how I think about this. First of all, I don't want anybody to do anything because I said so. Don't take my word for it. I appreciate people giving me the benefit of the doubt, but the way I try to do my work is simple. I describe the way I see something, and then I ask you to go look at the data and see if you see what I see. And if you see what I see, then you have made your own mind up. I haven't made it up for you. I have a real problem with people who make up our minds for us. The whole idea that because this person said it, it must be true. There are certainly places for that. I am happy, back when I used to fly, to let the pilot decide. I didn't need to see the data. She got to decide because she said so. But generally, particularly now as we are able to see so much more information about the world around us, we don't necessarily need more data. What we need is a construct for being able to look at that data. And I'd like to have that construct offered to me by somebody who has earned my trust, somebody who is probably doing it for my benefit, not for theirs. That indoctrination and manipulation happen when people show up and trick us into doing something that helps them, but doesn't help us. And I appreciate that there are people in the trenches like you who are sharing data. That matters. And I decided a really long time ago that I just wasn't diligent enough to footnote everything, find all the data, and prove it the way some of my colleagues do. So I picked a different route. And my route is to say, look, here's a story that I told myself about the data I just saw. Does that story resonate with you when you look at the data? So I haven't done any groundbreaking innovative work on the frontiers of, say, evolutionary biology. But I think if you read Survival is Not Enough or you hear me rant about it on one of my podcasts, then you can go read The Beak of the Finch. And after you read The Beak of the Finch, then you can tell me if the data that's in a book like that helps you see the world the same or differently than I did. Because human beings are a puzzle. And we're a puzzle because we are storytelling machines, but we also figured out just in the last 400 years, the scientific method. And the scientific method is simple. Gravity doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. It simply works. And so if the stories you are telling yourself about the world actually work, if when you bump into reality, reality matches the story you've been telling yourself in a way that is productive, then your stories are helping you. But if not, 
if it's causing tension and stress because the way you wish the world to be isn't the way the world actually is, well, you're not going to be able to change the world. But you might be able to change the story you tell yourself. I hope that's been helpful. I wish everybody a happy and safe new year. Here's to possibility and peace of mind. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.